Our scripture text this evening is Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, the parable of the rich fool. Now, this may appear somewhat random to pick up a parable in the middle of Luke. Uh, I suppose it is a bit, but it's not entirely random. We are going to, in a few weeks, go through the book of James. We're going to begin a series in James, which deals frequently with this theme of the rich and the poor. So we'll use this as something of background to that series in James, as we'll start that in a few weeks. Before we read God's word, let's ask for his blessing. Father in heaven, as we turn to your word to see what you have revealed, we ask that we would respond in submission and humility, that you would give to us understanding, that you'd give to he who speaks the correct knowledge and understanding to say only what is true and accurate according to your word, and that you would allow all of our hearts to be receptive. And Holy Spirit, that you would convict where appropriate and strengthen and encourage where we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God, the sense reading of God's word. Happiness is not determined by wealth or fame, but by character, says Billy Graham in his autobiography, Just As I Am. This is an excerpt from Billy Graham's autobiography. Ruth and I had a vivid illustration of this on an island in the Caribbean. One of the wealthiest men in the world asked us to come to his lavish home for lunch, He was 75 years old, and throughout the entire meal, he seemed close to tears. I am the most miserable man in the world, he said. Out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere I want to. I have my private plane, my helicopters. I have everything I want to make my life happy, yet I am as miserable as possible. We prayed with him, trying to point him to Christ, who alone gives lasting meaning to life. Later that afternoon, we met with the pastor of the local Baptist church. He was an Englishman, and he too was 75, a widower who spent most of his time taking care of his two invalid sisters. He was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and others. I don't have two pounds to my name, he said with a smile, but I am the happiest man on this island. Billy asked Ruth after they left, who do you think is the richer man? She didn't have to reply because they both knew the answer already. Now, when we hear a story like that, we've heard many of them, we think, yeah, you know, that's true. That's true. That's, that's right. You can't take it all with you. 
It can't come with you to heaven. We came into this world with nothing. We will leave it with nothing. That's right. Don't pursue that. We, we can see how the rich will destroy their lives in pursuit of wealth. And yet, the question is, do we say that amidst our own pursuit of these things that we can't take with us? Or of that stuff that won't last? Is that our pursuit? It's good to be reminded of this. This is important, clearly important enough that the Lord Jesus took this opportunity to show to the crowds, to the people who had come to him, this lesson. To show how important it was. Jesus is asked by the man, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's not an uncommon request to make of a rabbi in that day and age. They could arbitrate between them and inheritance laws. They could teach on that. And yet Jesus does not take that particular authority to himself. He says, Who, who's made me an arbitrator or judge over you? Perhaps he didn't want to get involved, for he knew this, this man's heart was intent upon greed. Whatever his reason, he takes this opportunity to teach the whole crowd, he, to teach them a whole lesson on covetousness, on greed. Covetousness is, in our circles, a much more appropriate sin. An appropriate sin, one that we're okay with. Greed and covetousness. You know, you have those unmentionable sins, those sins that you can't do, and to do them, that's really bad, but sometimes greed and coveting will allow to slip through the cracks. We'll pursue our possessions, our wealth, to the detriment of other things. And we miss Jesus' lesson. The danger we might have tonight would be that, well, I don't struggle with that. I'm not mad about money, nor am I wealthy, and yet that, that doesn't really matter. You see, Jesus is speaking to a whole crowd. He's speaking to a crowd of a, a mix of all of society, likely the poorest of the poor to the wealthy of the society, but probably most of them were more on the poor side of things, and yet he teaches them a lesson of greed. He teaches to them a lesson of coveting. You see, coveting and greed is not a rich man's problem. It's a sinful man's problem, and we all deal with it. We don't need to deal with it in a mad pursuit of money, as if every day we're checking our accounts and budgets and stocks and bonds and whatever we have. We can be mad about coveting. We can be absorbed with greed in many different ways. Materialism, the desire for vacations and hobbies, the desires, yes, for possessions or wealth. And even our reasoning doesn't have to be, well, we're just greedy. We just want it. Sometimes the reason, that, the, the reason behind our greed and coveting is a desire for security. If we had that bank account, if we had that money, then we're secure. We want a buffer between us and destitution. And we place our, our faith and our hope in that buffer that protects us. And it doesn't then need to just be we want, want, want. We want the wealth, want the green paper as much as we want the things of creation, or security, whatever it is. And so we see that Jesus deals with this by teaching a lesson, by giving a parable, and then presenting an application. And those are our points tonight. The lesson that Jesus gives, the parable he teaches, and the application he provides. First, the lesson. The lesson we find in verse 15. Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Just a couple things to draw our attention to here. First, it's a call to take care and guard yourself. 
which means there is a pressing problem against us. We will all face the desire to covet. We will all face the temptation of greed. And so guard yourself is what Christ is saying. The very fact that he's warning against it shows that it's something we have to have our guard against, to, be, to have our radar up. Am I being greedy? What's the source of my life? What's the source of our lives? Let's ask that question. Jesus is saying it's not in an abundance of possessions. Well, then what is it? So we need to look at ourselves and guard ourselves from this own problem. Second, we see here it's against all covetousness. As I've said already, this is literally all forms of greed, whatever it may be. Whatever it's the wants that control our lives. Whatever fits into that driving force behind us. What are we after? What are we pursuing? What gives us the joy in life? Is it that next vacation we can take? That's for some people, that's, that's huge, that, that break, that rest. And is that the, the goal? I just want to travel. I just want to just take a time away from work. And those aren't bad things, but when they become the ultimate end, they are. Perhaps it is money. Perhaps it is that what pursues us. And yet money can come after us in, in rather devious ways. Is it your home? The quality of your possessions, the projects that you can do, the betterment of your, your house. Oh, I want to, whatever, replace the countertops in the kitchen. I want to add the addition. I want to, I want to, I want. Or, or is it trucks or cars? It's just, I want that thing. These things that we pursue, are they really not just perhaps blessings that God gives, but the, the driving force of our life? And so, second, we had seen that Christ guards, says to guard against all covetousness. And third is the actual lesson. He says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, Jesus' point is to say life's worth isn't the abundance of possessions, but it's the richness towards God. That's what we see in the text. Is it those riches, the happiness, the joy that they can give? It's, what is this? It's that waiting for the Amazon package, right? And we, we, we we're so covetous and greedy that we, we have tracking numbers, and where is it? Oh, it's in this place, and where, where did it come today? Let me log on and see, is my package arriving? Not all bad, but you can see that there's, there's a sort of covetousness about it. Where's our stuff? Is it coming yet? Or have you noticed, I, I've noticed this, I'm very guilty of this, where you don't have a project or something coming. You're not waiting an Amazon package, and that just really brings you down. It's like, I don't have something coming. Where's that next thing I'm going to get? So easy to fall into the possessions of life, these things that we want. And the reason they're deceptive is because things in and of themselves aren't bad. And we'll see that as we get to the explanation of the parable. A surplus crop isn't bad. And having barns to contain them isn't bad. It's the, the reasoning behind this foolish rich man. It's what he's pursuing. So we do have to be on our guard. Is it the clothes that we want? Is, is it that, that, that hobby, whatever it is? What do we pursue most of us, and certainly the world, could probably say that our lives seem to consist in the abundance of possessions to one degree or another. Most of us could probably say that there is that pursuit in our hearts, that we can see it pretty easily. If we're to look and examine what gives us our, our joy in life, 
It would likely be in some way an abundance of possessions. And so Jesus gives the lesson that the goodness and the worth and the value of life are not in possessions or the creation itself. And so he teaches a lesson. We see this in the parable. This is our second point, the parable. So the lesson, what we just covered that Jesus is teaching, is that life's worth does not consist in the abundance of earthly possessions, but in richness toward God. And to explain that, he gives the parable. This parable of the rich man. This rich man has a problem. He's had a bumper crop. It's, it's soared. And there's so much fruitfulness. And on one side, we'd say, well, what a great blessing. That's tremendous. What a great blessing that God has even given him. God is the source of this blessing. He it is who brings the rain and allows the crops. It is not this man and his genius that can contrive this. So God gives to him abundance. And we can take this parable and apply it to our own lives. Were we to fall in this abundance, what would we do? In response, he builds barns. Bigger barns. Now, what was the problem with this rich man in the parable? It wasn't that he was successful. His problem wasn't that he had a surplus crop. Nor was his problem that he necessarily built bigger barns. The problem was, first of all, that the rich man shows he does not understand life. That's his first problem. He doesn't understand life. What do I mean by that? He fails to realize that his body is mortal. That he does not know the day of his death. So that's the first part of his foolishness. That little, little part that we might miss. We see it. Soul, my soul, your, your goods are stored up. You're safe for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. But where was his error? Did he have many years? Did he know the time of his death? And the reason that's instructive for us is that you can't live for this life. To live for this life is a misunderstanding of this life. It doesn't get it. It doesn't understand it. God could call us at any time, at any moment. And when you say it like that, you see the foolishness of a pursuit of goods. You see the foolishness of wasting your life on possessions. You cannot take them with you. And just as we began, that's such a simple lesson that we know, and yet so often fail to actually live. The drive in us is to live for these things that we know we can't take. So his first problem, he does not understand life. His second problem, the second point of his foolishness, was in trying to find satisfaction for his soul in ample goods. We see this in his proclamation to eat, drink, and be merry. This was for his satisfaction. This is what he was seeking to satisfy himself. He thought, if I get this, I have this, now I'm set. That is inherently sinful. Why? Are we set in anything other than God? Anything other than Christ? Are we set there? Can we tell our souls, you're good. You got it all. Enjoy life as if we can't enjoy life until that happens, until we have abundance. No, that... Unless we have that, then we can't have it. Then we need satisfaction in these goods. No, the satisfaction comes in God himself. And so to live in satisfaction of goods is foolish. It won't satisfy. And yet he's telling himself it will. So that's his second problem. His third problem is that he doesn't think of others. 
He doesn't think of others. Now, where does this come out? The parable didn't say that he was abusing the poor, and we don't need to think he did. So then why? How how can we say that, that he was self-absorbed? If you notice as you read this text, you can look at it in your pew Bibles, how many times he says, I and my. It's something like 12 times or so one of those terms is used. It's a a hyper-focus on himself. I will do this. I will build my stuff. I will have this. My soul can say, I will do. It's all I and my. There is no focus on anything or anyone else. And that's foolish. That doesn't display what a Christian ought to. That doesn't display what a believer and what a follower of God understands. It's no mistake that the early church of Acts, filled with the Spirit, gave bountifully. Gave abundantly. The stories in Acts say that these Christians would sell plots of land. That was, that was wealth back then. Land. That's where you held it. That's where you had your inheritance. And the more you had, the more money you could make, the more crops you could have. Whatever it was, land was it. And these early saints would sell land and give 100% of the profits to those in need and to the church. The point of Acts is not to stress that's what all of us should do. That's the institution. Give all you have. The point of Acts is to show their heart and how generous it was. The exact opposite of what this is. The surplus response of his crops wasn't, I'm going to build bigger barns, sell, and give to the church, give to the people. It was for his own satisfaction. And that then makes us question, and we need to question, at what point does our stockpiling and stockpiling become this problem, an unhealthy focus on ourselves and not others? We should ask that question from this parable He goes too far. So that's his third problem. And his fourth problem is that this rich man doesn't thank and glorify God. He doesn't render praise to its due. There is no heavenly direction to it. You see, the foolishness of this man was that his eyes were focused on the creation when it should have been focused on the creator. It was more important to take the thought for eating, drinking, and merriment than it was for anything else. So he is called by God a fool. He was a fool for he had spent his, his life on this life that could end at any moment on possessions that don't satisfy and missing richness towards God. That's why he's a fool. Now, we can read this parable and again have it just fly right over our heads and miss it because we think we don't have an abundant crop. We're not swimming in surplus. surplus. We're not building bigger barns. But if we miss those lessons, then we are being the fools. If we're living for this life without any thought for God, if we're trying to find our satisfaction in in anything other than God, if we're not geared towards others, our neighbors, or geared towards God in fulfillment of these things, we're fools living for this life and not for Him. One commentator says, "The The man who is not rich in regard to God is indeed poor. No matter how big his bank balance, he is therefore, in the last analysis, a fool, a godless, and hence a senseless man. He has, as he thought, prepared for his own comfort, but he has not prepared for his ultimate destiny. Financial planning, you know, we we have financial planners, a whole financial industry, to again accommodate all the wealth we're swimming in, which isn't the bad part, what we do with it, but... 
I digress, we have these things, we have financial planners, and, and the wise and the wisdom would tell you to, di- to have investments and diversify and be well spread out, don't put everything in one basket, all these things. Really the point that Jesus is giving here is the best financial planning. To trade what is not lasting and what you lose for what is of eternal value, richness towards God. We'll get in a moment at what richness towards God is. But that's what he's saying. He's giving us financial advice. Jesus is putting on, as it were, his financial planning cap and telling you, don't waste all your investments on this life. Give to the kingdom and store up treasure in heaven. Give of yourself to others. That that has lasting value. Very important to God. Our wealth and how we use it is very important. It's not ours. They were gifts of God, and he tells us how to use it, and he tells us that here, and it's not to use it for our satisfaction. It's to use it for him, for others. That is his problem. The Bible calls that man a fool. Verse 20 says, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? All that time and energy this man wasted and had nothing to show for it. We need to be warned, as Jesus shows us. And now we see the conclusion, the application and conclusion that Jesus gives. It's easy to see. It's in verse 21. This rich man was a fool. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The application is laying up treasure for yourself. Greed and covetousness is foolish because it is idolatry of self. Putting ourselves at the center, making ourselves God. But being rich toward God is of ultimate Value. So the negative of this application is, don't do this. Be on your guard against this. But the positive is then be rich toward God. How are we rich towards God? How do we do that? The parable and the surrounding context supply the answer. Obviously, in light of Luke's emphasis, being rich towards God, we see a big part of this is carrying out that richness towards others. That's the inevitable conclusion. The very, the very spark that gave this parable is a man asking for his brother to divide the inheritance. And Jesus' point is not to be consumed with that. But what then, what then are the wealthy to be consumed with? What do they do with their money? If it's not to eat, drink, and be merry, what is it to do? Well, it's to give to others, to provide for others in need. That's the necessary deduction from this text. Richness towards God is more than this, but it begins in being rich towards others. Showing love towards others is showing love towards God. God isn't here in physical form. You cannot go to a temple. We're glad about this. This is idolatrous. You cannot go to a temple, bow down before some image of God, and present your gifts before that image. That's not how we present riches towards our God. How do we do it then? By showing it to those he's made in his image. That's how we show that richness towards God. What is the summary of the law? To love God. And how do we do that as well? We love God and neighbor. And so we are rich towards others. Do we think about providing for others' needs? Most of the time we think of our budgets. We think of how we give. 
A good practice, what we do is, I'm guessing many of us think of the 10%, we tithe, we give that amount. That's a great practice. And yet, how often has, have we given from sacrifice? How often have we taken ourselves, sacrificed something, sacrificed the trip, sacrificed the project or the hobby or the whatever it is, and given more of it? This is where we really feel it. In one sense, it's almost easy to say, I'm going to give my 10%. But what is that at times but just scraping off our surplus? Scraping off of that top piece that we know isn't ours and we'll give to others, but all this is ours, and we can do what we want with that. We need to be mindful of just what are we spending our pursuits on? What are we spending our money on? This parable raises the, the, the uncomfortable questions how do we really need to better this part of our life? Right now we're focusing a lot on just money itself, but that's because that's really what the parable is. It's focusing on the, the currency of the day, of wealth. I think this parable at least warrants the question, should I spend large sums of money on enjoyments and hobbies and vacations, none of which are wrong? And that's the difference. There are rich Christians in God's word who are blessed, who are wise, and they had riches. Trips and vacations are not wrong. Doing projects are not wrong. But when it is done as your source of fulfillment, when it is done to your own glory, and when it is done without any thought to God or for others, that's a problem. I present before us, before myself, the example of the Christians in Acts. How difficult it is. But they, they put their money where their mouth was. Their bank accounts reflected what was most important to them. What was their highest goal. And they showed wisdom, as I would say in that analogy. They showed financial wisdom in that they saw this life will not last. Fool, your life is required of you. Whose will your possessions be? Are we living our lives in a mad pursuit to get, 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 all the way of getting up into the point where we're dead? And we leave with none of that. That's what we have to consider. What ultimately has value? What is more worthwhile? And here's the beauty. This isn't just to be a guilt trip. It's to show us where we can sin, but direct us to something more beautiful. And what's the beauty of it? The beauty of it is that in giving to others, we are quite literally giving to God. What we do to and for others is for God himself. Acts of mercy are acts for Christ. Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40 say this. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, did it to me. 
Let's just pause and contemplate the beauty where we can take goods and money and things that don't have any value and spend it at Christ's feet that has eternal value. It's profound. We don't mean by this a disconnected giving. We don't just mean it's the write the check and send it off. It's the clothing of those in your life. Providing food for the, the poor of your life. Where God has placed you. Giving, yes, through the church, but, but your own actions in life. This takes perception. This takes us to actually look for others' needs. To look for the kingdom and kingdom worked. And to do it. It isn't easy because that will mean sacrificing of something that some of us hold far more valuable than money, and that's our time. But we can make the same application. Why cling to time that's fleeting and will run out of? Why cling to that pursuit when spending that time for God's kingdom is of eternal value for his glory? It presses us, and it should that's the first aspect of being rich towards God, it's being rich towards others, but there's more. There's more to it than that. If you keep reading in Luke 12, you see how it continues. Look at Luke 12 again, and look at verse 21. And so you see the application and the conclusion. It says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then in your Bibles, you have a heading that wasn't in the original. We provide these headings because they help us see the structure of the text in the Bible. But you could read that it, con- it continues there. Right after verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And then he goes into this well-known text about not being anxious about trusting in God for his provision. Being rich towards God is more than just giving towards others. It's trust in him to give to you your needs. So often in God's word, when there's talking about money and about giving to the kingdom, it's usually surrounded somewhere by a reference to anxiety, and that makes sense. If you're so giving of your wealth and of these things of the earth, these things that we hold to give us security, if you're giving that away, well, aren't you now anxious? Well, what will I do? How will I be clothed? This text is not advocating. We give to the point where we're in need of help. That's foolishness as well. But what it's saying is, as you give of these things that can't supply, know that God will give you your needs. And the the application of that is trust. So being rich towards God is not simply giving towards others. It's trusting that He will provide. It's trusting in Him. It's not being anxious. And as you scroll as well, you'll see as it continues, verses 35 and following, Talk about being ready, being dressed for action, to keep your lamps burning, awaiting the coming of God. And so being rich towards God, as you see in all these things, is to trust in Him, to be conscious of His coming, to live with a kingdom focus. That's probably how we could summarize all of that. How is it to be rich towards God, living with a kingdom focus? That's how we are rich. Verses 31 Verse 31 of Luke 12 shows, Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And then as you look a little further down at verses 32 through 34, it says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Makes a compelling case in those verses. Give of the things that do not last for what does. That's why I keep saying it's the financial planning. That's the imagery of the text itself. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. What Jesus is saying is literally as you do these things, you are heaped upon with the wealth of the kingdom, which is ultimately far greater than the wealth of this earth. Life is worth more than the abundance of possessions. The worth of life does not consist in them, but in richness towards God. Let us heed that call for Christ's glory. That's ultimately the reason. It's easy to end there and say amen and stop. And you're left with the message to go and give. That's not the ultimate goal here. The ultimate goal is to give for God, His glory. If we're giving for any other reason, we're failing in it. And that's not the point that we have gathered here to just modify and adjust our behavior. We have gathered to praise Him. We give to praise Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we see your will here for even how we are to spend of our money. And here we see a lot of freedom. We don't see constrictions. We don't see percentages given. We don't see how and exactly what we are to do. It is left for our generosity. It is left for our heart to determine these things. But we do see your purpose and will. For us to understand that we are not to live for this earth. We are not to live for the abundance of possessions. And the worth of life is not in these things, but rather in richness towards you. We see that means that it's to give to those in need. We see that it is to trust you, to be ready for your coming. In all these ways, we are rich towards you as we seek the kingdom. And we do this for your glory. May it not be that we could feel good about ourselves in giving. To satisfy some conscience, we pray that instead it would be for your praise, your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name.